I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Libby Watson, a healthcare journalist and author of Sick Note, a newsletter all about American healthcare. Today, we will be talking about the healthcare-specific ramifications of the COVID-19 public health emergency ending. Ms. Watson, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime. Happy to be here. So can you break down the situation in detail? What is going on with the public health emergency and why is it happening? Yeah, so uh, at the start of the pandemic, uh, the federal government declared this thing called a public health emergency. Um, It's kind of a, you know, a sort of technical term. um, And as part of that declaration, um, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, basically gave states a 6.2% bump in funding in exchange for them not kicking anybody off Medicaid, which is usually something that happens all the time. You know, the state Medicaid agency will send recipients uh, a letter or they will check their wage data to figure out whether they still qualify based on low income. Um, And so throughout the pandemic, states haven't been doing this at all. Um, And so uh, almost no one, not exactly no one, but almost no one has been removed from the Medicaid rolls without asking to be um, in the last two years. Um, And so when the public health emergency ends, uh, states will have to resume this process, which is sort of a normal part of the Medicaid program. Um, But the real wrinkle comes with the fact that that 6.2% bump in funding uh, will go away within just 60 days of the end of the public health emergency. So even though states will have 14 months to start up this process of redetermining people's income, uh, they'll only have two months of extra funding to pay for all of these extra enrollees. You know, the Medicaid rolls are bigger than they've ever been. It's about 77 million people. Um, and so they'll have this very strong financial incentive to kick people off as quickly as possible and perhaps as sloppily as possible. That purge symbolizes how, obviously, because of the emergency, it was just an expansion of the current system. Why do you think the pandemic expanded enrollment and didn't prompt a stronger push towards reforming the current system? I mean, that's a great question. I, w- I wish I knew the answer because then I would know how we could get Medicare for all in this country. Um, and I'd love, I'd love to understand it. Uh, you know, it was a very strange time right at the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, you even had Republicans agreeing to things like, you know, expanded unemployment and eviction protections and stuff like that. And it feels so far away now, you know, two, two years later, we have, you know, essentially the Biden administration kind of getting on board with the get back to normal, uh, you know, ending masking and things like that. Um, you know, I can't really answer it other than just to say that, you know, I, you observe the same patterns over and over again, you know, this story, this coming wave of Medicaid coverage losses, you know, the Urban Institute estimated that 15 million people could lose coverage. Um, And I think it could actually be higher than that. Um, And, you know, that's just an absolutely massive story. And it's not really been covered all that much, you know, especially not at the state level. And, you know, you just have to think that, you know, there, there are these very powerful forces in this country and especially in, in media coverage and in shaping uh, you know, political priorities um, that just make it hard to get people or the media or politicians to care about what happens to poor people. You know, Medicaid is so undercovered as a topic. Uh, you know, people have no idea how stringent some of the requirements can be to get on Medicaid in some states. Um, and uh, I think there's just a huge lack of awareness. With that lack of awareness being said, with the issues you just articulated about so many millions of people losing their health care, how do you feel the pandemic underscored 
the flaws in the American healthcare system and the perceptions around it? How did the pandemic affect that? Oh, I mean, how long have you got? I could answer that for hours. I mean, you know, we saw it right from the beginning. Again, there were all these kind of temporary fixes to the to the system where, you know, uh, the, the, gov- the government mandated that insurers would have to cover the cost of tests or treatment or, um, you know, and vaccines were free and, and stuff like that. Um, and now just in the last couple of days, we've had the news that the government is running out of this funding. And again, it's just this, well, you know, we don't really care. Um, you know, there hasn't been any uh, attempt to change the underlying system. You know, the underlying American healthcare system, which isn't really a system at all, is pretty incompatible with large-scale government action um, and with uh, fixing problems at all, I would say. Uh, You know, you look at something like vaccines, you know, the vaccine distribution worked so well because the government just did it all, you know, or not even did it all, but kind of took over the entire process. You know, they uh, sent out doses to states, they set up clinics and stuff. I got my vaccine in DC at the convention center, walked in, walked out, easy peasy. You know, it was was the most like being back in England and going on the NHS than anything I've done. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) even during, even after uh, the, even at the start of the pandemic, when insurers still had to cover things like tests and treatment, there were immediately stories of you know, just like billing mistakes and people having to uh, people having to pay for tests or treatment that they weren't supposed to, or just you know out and out fraud. Um, you know, places just like charging absolutely wildly inf- inflated prices for um, for things like tests. And there's no there's nothing to stop that. You know, something like a test. You know, if you're if you're a healthcare provider and you want to charge, you know, ten thousand dollars for an MRI when a guy down the street is charging a thousand dollars. You can do that. There's no one to stop you. Um, and so, you know, it was inevitable that that sort of activity was going to happen um, with the pandemic, too. But it's, you know, it's really outrageous that it that it can go on day to day. So now that the pandemic is, quote unquote, ending mm-hmm. and the public health emergency funding is going away, you talked about how the government can't be made to care about what happens to the healthcare needs of poor people besides those who are less financially well off. Are there any other groups of Americans, any other strata that you believe would suffer mo- most from this mass disenrollment? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a sort of overlapping group, but certainly, um, you know, disabled people and especially immunocompromised people. Um, you know, I think the last, you know, let's say six months or so is the the push to uh, not even really reopen because everything has been open anyway for a long time, but to get rid of the last pandemic restrictions and masking and stuff. People who uh, either can't get vaccines or for whom the vaccines are not effective and take immunosuppressive drugs and so on. Um, those people, there's really no answer for them. You know, if the, the CDC is basically just like, yeah, you should continue to be careful, but it's very, very difficult to be careful if no one else is being careful. That's sort of the whole point. You know, it's very hard to protect yourself from getting coronavirus completely. Uh, if you're not, you know, if other people aren't doing the same thing. Um, and so, you know, those are the people that have been most harmed. And also, you know, if, the, if you are, for example, an immunocompromised person who is also disabled, you're also on Medicaid, you know, you also maybe have trouble keeping up with, uh, keeping up with forms or, um, you know, you don't have someone to help you explain what, you know, the forms that you're looking at. I mean, some of these, some of these processes for Medicaid renewal can be very, 
complicated. And again, it varies a lot by state. But um, if you look at Texas, for example, uh, in Texas, um, when the state sends you uh, a letter to say that they need you to verify your income to prove that you still qualify for Medicaid, you only have 10 days to respond to that piece of mail. So if you're a person who, for any reason, might not have, you know, might not have 10 days, you know, might not be able to get that done in 10 days, for example, you're busy, you know, you're working or, um, you know, you're disabled and you can't get a ride to the bank to print out your bank statements to prove you don't have income. I mean, there's just infinite ways that this could be more harmful um, if you are a person who is already struggling. Um, so, I mean, certainly, you know, when we talk about Medicaid, Medicaid isn't just a program for poor people. It's also a program for disabled people who also have to be very poor to qualify. Um, but yeah, absolutely. People with disabilities, I think, is the number one answer there. I want to pose a hypothetical for you, Ms. Watson. Mm -hmm. You are the president of the United States and your party has unanimous control of Congress. You can't influence state governments, but you could influence federal policy. How would you combat this, on, this upcoming Medicare purge, Medicaid purge, if you had that authority? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if I had unanimous control of the federal government, I'd be doing Medicare for all uh, immediately or something even better. Um, you know, if I if I could uh, click my fingers and get get something done, it would be something like, a, you know, an NHS style system where the government not only pays for healthcare but also employs all the providers as well. You know, I mean, that's what I grew up with. And uh, that's what that's the, the way I think is best to do it. I don't think that a system with widespread use of private insurance or really private insurance at all is compatible with health equity and justice. But if I couldn't do that, I would certainly make it so that you could, you know, kind of turn Medicaid into a sort of public option um, and make it so that the government doesn't do this process of means testing, essentially, to figure out whether or not you're poor enough to qualify. Um, that would be, you know, just getting rid of this process of redeterminations entirely, getting rid of the process of um, requiring people to prove that they're poor enough entirely. Um, or even, you know, I'm going to go down the steps here. If I couldn't even get that done for some reason, one big thing would be to just sort of maybe like triple the federal poverty level, um, because a lot of these programs, not just Medicaid, but other programs like Social Security, um, which, you know, helps pay benefits for disabled people. Um, the those those uh, income levels are based on the federal poverty level, which is ridiculously low for a single person. I think it's something like twelve thousand dollars or something, which is just um, you know impossible to think about. You know, I mean that that number just seems like it's you know it must be from the nineties and they just never updated it or something. You know, like the minimum wage. Um, and so I would just triple that, or you know, or double it, or triple it, or something, um, and just make it so that what we consider poverty is much much higher because I think that reflects reality and prices and wages and so on. My last question for you, Ms. Watson, I want to bring it back to reality. What for what scenarios do you foresee, if any, where the increased coverage due to the PHE is able to remain at least partially? Because we've seen a so, sort of similar thing with the student debt cancellations, mm -hmm. right? Or postponements where there was public pressure and the Biden administration kept it in place. Do you think that could happen in some sort of capacity? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, <laughs> I mean, I think one thing you do have to consider is the midterms. You know, if I'm Joe Biden, it's like, like you say, with the student loan thing, if I'm Joe Biden, I don't really want to turn the big student loan hose back on uh, right before the, the midterm elections. And certainly, um, you know, I don't, I don't really know whether the, exactly the same dynamic is going to apply 
there with with Medicaid because uh, because it's a sort of joint federal state program. Um, but certainly, I, I you know, <laughs> it's not very uh, it's not very politically smart to me to kick a bunch of people off their health insurance right before uh, right before the election. So there is that, and then also there is some sort of increasing pressure from state Medicaid directors to the federal government to keep you know. I don't want to say kicking the can down the road, but, you know, be more reasonable about the amount of, um, what's the word, uh, time, you know, the amount of notice they get uh, before this happens. Um, and so uh, the, the Biden administration has promised that they will give states 60 days notice before they end the, the public health emergency. And so it's already not going to happen in April. We know it's, you know, if he keeps that promise, we know it won't happen until at least July. Um, state Medicaid directors recently asked Congress to give them 90 days notice. Um, so that would sort of push it back even further. So I don't know if we'll see more of that. Um, it's, it is sort of hard to square that with the Biden administration's other messaging that the pandemic is over, go back to work, go back to school, you know, everything is normal. Uh, if you get COVID, just, you know, it was your fault for not being vaccinated or go to the hospital, it's fine, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's hard to square that with like you say, kicking the can down the road on student loans, uh, the PhD expiring. I don't, I don't really know. Um, but you know, I mean, again, politically, it's such a, such a difficult thing. Um, and there is this pressure from, from state Medicaid agencies. So it is possible that it gets extended again, just for, for those reasons. It'll certainly be a policy decision to watch. And Ms. Watson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about a very, a very serious issue that I did not know about until I got, uh, a media release about your article. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it was helpful. You know, I, there has been a very, you know, there, there have been national news articles about this, which is good. But what really disturbs me is the lack of state level coverage of this, because this is happening in every single state, every single state Medicaid agency has to be planning for this. You know, they know this is coming. And we know very little about what their plans are. So, you know, it, it's really up to state and local journalists who obviously, you know, are way underfunded and underpaid um to figure out what's happening there at their state and before you leave miss watson where can our listeners find your work yeah absolutely so the website is sicknote.co um, and you can sign up uh, for free there to receive emails a couple times a week about healthcare. all right miss watson thank you so much thank you